Show. It is Thursday, June the 16th, year of our Lord 2022. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for being with us. So glad you could be with us. A lot to do on the show today. We're going to talk a little service economy. We're going to talk about something that's going on in the economy that's affecting things, but it's not exactly making headlines. Also, we're going to talk a little therapy, how relativism creeps into that, how it shouldn't. A very interesting piece with a lot of food for thought that goes far beyond just therapy, but also how we view the world and view ourselves. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Great guest today. Very excited to have him here. Daniel DiMartino has been a friend for a while. One of the real superstars of Young Voices. He has started what's called the Dissident Project, and we'll let him explain it to himself. He comes from a country that has suffered under communism. He has a project put together to have speakers who have come from countries of communism go out and educate people on what happens when fascist dictatorships take over via communism and what that does to freedom. Daniel DiMartino on the program today. Very excited about that. Also, a great story in the program. Uh, the NHL team out in Vegas giving money to housing uh, charities. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, first, though, uh, we're going to start overseas. We've been talking more domestically lately, but we need to go overseas for this first story. Over uh, in the other side of the world, uh, Xi Jinping, who is the uh, dictator of China, and Vladimir Putin, who is the dictator of Russia, had themselves a phone call. This is from Sky News. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has reasserted his country's support for Russia in a second phone call with Vladimir Putin described as, quote, warm and friendly. Isn't that special? Two of the real despicable human beings on the face of the earth who are oppressing millions and killing thousands. But they're warm and friendly. Isn't that special? Uh, back to Sky News. In its account of the conversation, the Kremlin said Mr. Z had noted the legitimacy of actions taken by Russia to protect itself in the face of challenges to its security created by external forces. Uh, that's communism speak for uh, the war in Ukraine, among other things. Both leaders are also said to have agreed the Sino-Russian relations were a, quote, unprecedentedly high level and that they plan to deepen ties in energy, finance and industry. China has refused to criticize Russia's invasion of Ukraine or to even refer to it in such terms, like with the wordy word we just did at the beginning of this article, while accusing NATO in the West of provoking Moscow into attacking. Weeks before the Russian attack, Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi met in Beijing and oversaw the signing of an agreement pledging relations between the two sides would have, quote, no limits. It is unclear whether Mr. Xi knew at the time of Russia's plan to invade Ukraine. Time out from the piece real quick. Uh, if you have a functional frontal cortex, you already know the answer to this because pundits everywhere, including people that just sit on a computer and read this thing from afar, all saw the Ukrainian invasion happen. You're not going to tell me that one of the most powerful men in the world didn't know. Sorry, that just didn't happen. Finishing up the Sky New piece, in that meeting, the two leaders pushed back against U.S. pressure, declaring their opposition to any expansion of NATO and reaffirming the island of Taiwan as part of China. It's not. The U.S. has a one-China policy, which is meant to commit peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Additionally, Taiwan Relations Act 
Beijing, for its parts, insists the self-governing Taiwan. We'll deal with Taiwan at some other point, but let's get back to Russia and China for a second. Uh, folks have been talking about Dragon Bear or Bear Dragon, whichever way you want to talk about that, for a while now. And the disposition is, is that a marriage of convenience or is it a temporary alliance or is it a movement in the world order? There's a couple things to deal with here. Uh, first of all, because of some of the sanctions, now we talked yesterday about how the oil sanctions aren't really real, so Europe's kind of trying to have both ways here. But with the sanctions they are doing, that pushes Russia more towards China and also some other countries like India, but we'll deal with that at another time. China and Russia are both dictatorships. They're both horrible on human rights. They both want to oppress and rule and dominate. They're both imperialistic, but they're doing it two different ways. Russia's doing it militarily, both with arms sales around the world and in a shooting war in Ukraine. And they're also threatening other people if they don't get stopped and bogged down in Ukraine. China does it financially, and they do it politically. They're doing it with things like their Silk Road Initiative. This is something that I think we need to pay very close attention to with Dragon Bear. Is this a true partnership and an alliance between two partners? But here's something that we should pay very close attention to. With Russia's economy, even though they're doing okay now, they're going to be more and more under stress as the Ukrainian war drags on and as other parts of the world somewhat isolate them, even though their oil reserves and gas production is not getting hurt all that bad. If Russia becomes intricately financially tied into China, that changes the calculus on this. A debtor nation of Russia to China would be a monumental shift in the world order, and it would mean very, very bad things for a very, very large swath of the planet, millions and millions of people underneath oppressive regimes and millions and millions of people under blatant dictatorships who have no regard for human life whatsoever. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are two of the worst human beings on earth. The trappings of their office and their fancy nice suits and their flowery words do not change that, nor does any of the propaganda either one of them spews. And the fact that they are coming closer together, even with opposition from the rest of the world, means only one thing, more suffering for the people who are forced to live underneath them. We should call it out for what it is, and we need to pay very close attention to what is happening in this alliance, because when two bad people get together like this, a lot of bad things are going to come from it. A lot of show to get to today. Short opening segment. More Hurt Tell right after this. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome back to Hurtel. This is an interesting piece I read. Uh, it's at thenewatlantis.com. We'll link to it in the show notes like we always do. It talks about therapy. Um, I do therapy. I'm a mental health patient at the VA. Have been for quite a while. Probably will be for most of the rest of my life because I got issues. But it's good to work on such things. But James Mumford wrote this, and this is the tail end of it. I want you to read the whole thing if you get the chance to. It's talking about relativism. Uh, the philosophy, of course, 
and how it has not served therapy particularly well because good therapy also requires hard truth. And we know from our own adventures in covering culture and politics that relativism and hard truths do not like to occupy the same space. But anyway, I want to read this. This is more a food for thought thing. Just kind of chew on it, read the whole piece, make up your own mind. But I think this goes beyond just something like therapy. I think there's a lot of cultural and political uh, implications to this as well, how you approach something. So anyway, James Mumford in the New Atlantis reading from the piece. The reinstatement of good and evil in psychology would not mean the banishment of individual discovery. Actually, it would allow psychologists to make more sense of patient aspirations like personal growth and indeed of the patient's desire for real agency. At the start of Khalid Hoshini's harrowing novel, The Kite Runner, Amir's old friend Rahim Khan asked him to come visit him in Pakistan. Standing in the kitchen with the receiver to my ear, I knew it wasn't just Rahim Khan on the line. It was my past unatoned sins. That's a quote from the book. Rahim Khan said, There's, there is a way to be good again. How can a psychology wedded to relativism make any sense of this possibility of finding a way to be good again of moral transformation? What does progress or growth mean if there's no standard of goodness outside of ourselves? Talk of, quote, a way to be good again, end quote, makes no sense if good is merely what you decide it is. Goodness can function as a meaningful measure of our actions, only if it's not the product of our own minds. This is how I come to realize that, in truth, my career had come at the expense of my children. I work all weekend. I'm glued to my phone. I'm never fully present with them. There, but not there. That is because, in all honesty, my chief value had been my career, not my family. But then I began to play out on the trajectory I am on. Somewhere down the line, my daughter tells me she hates me and that I never properly was available to her. Or as a teenager, she gets into trouble with the law and says my absence was a cause. Reckoning with a picture of this possible future precipitates a crisis for me. I realize that though I have lived up to my values, my career's doing fine, I'm actually pursuing the wrong values. I have lost my way. I need to backtrack to where I went wrong, recognize the duty incumbent upon me, and alter my course. Not rationalizing the values I do have, but thinking about the values I should have is what leads me to change. What would it look like for psychologists to preach what they practice, to accommodate the intrinsic values they presuppose their patients to have? It would not, I think, necessarily entail a return to Victorian-style moralism, making patients stand on stools like Jane Eyre in the Lowood School on her pedestal of infamy and branding them sinners and liars. Rather, I would see psychologists refusing to rule out of the offset of transcendent good that is the natural end of man's quest for meaning. It would see psychologists encouraging patients to search for values beyond themselves, but making that quest for themselves. It would see psychologists echoing Iris Murdoch's challenge that each of us make an attempt to look the right way away for self towards a distant, transcendent perfection, a source of uncontaminated energy, a source of new and quite undreamt of virtue. There are values and obligations and demands out there in the world that I may never have assented to that simply come with the territory of being a human. Any psychology that is going to be therapeutically beneficial, that is going to help people attain personal growth and become good again, will help us acknowledge and reckon with those values, with truths that we may have never circled in an exercise. James Monford writing in the New Atlantis will link to the piece. Go read the whole thing. A lot of food for thought there. More Hurt Tell right after this. 
Welcome back to Herd Tell Show. I've been wanting to do this one for a while. I am excited to have him here. He is one of the bright stars of Young Voices. You're going to love him. Uh, and I'm anxious to get to know this audience. Daniel DiMartino, my friend, it's been a while coming. I'm thrilled to talk to you on the show. Welcome. Likewise, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the bio because your story is so great. Um, tell folks where you're from, uh, your home country. You're very proud to be here. But that's really at the core of where we're going to go with what you're getting involved in. And I think it's so amazing. But just give people kind of the sketch background on your biography, my friend. Yeah, well, I'm from Venezuela. I came to the United States six years ago um, to study in Indianapolis at IUPUI. Um, and I have a degree in economics. I'm doing a PhD in economics now. And ever since I got to the U.S., not only, of course, I study and, and um, do my research and, and do what I, what I love, but at the same time, I decided to, to help on, on a volunteer capacity just because I'm very passionate about it. Uh, Americans learn about the disaster of socialism since I saw so many Americans fall in the trap of socialist politicians. And that's why we began this project that we're going to talk about today called the Dissident Project, where we're going to send survivors of socialist regimes from all over the world who live in the United States now to high schools to tell their stories and, and explain students that socialism is not the answer to our problems, but rather it is the cause of our problems. Yeah. Now let's do some nomenclature. Let's make sure everybody's on the same page here. Because socialism is one of those things that, you know, Twitter gets a hold of it and turns something into a buzzword and then this, that and the other and your, your uncle's socialism and that car over there socialism and everything. I don't like socialism. Okay. That's not what you're talking about. Use your home country as an example, because folks that maybe don't know the, the backstory, Venezuela is a country that's rich in resources, has a wonderful people, was a vibrant economy. Then you had Hugo Chavez. Now you have Manduro. This is not the buzzword socialism Facebook mean kind of thing you're talking about. This has very real world implications for the country you come from, doesn't it? Yes. Venezuela used to be the fourth richest country in the world in the 1950s. And even at the end of the 20th century in 1999, it was the richest country in Latin America uh, by far. Uh, why? Because Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world and it was a relatively free economy. And that allowed, of course, people to flourish and make a lot of money. Uh, that changed when Chavez got elected in 1998. He took office in 1999, uh, that, which was the year I was born as well. And he totally revamped the economy. He took over businesses. He put price controls on the remaining private businesses. He controlled uh, international trade imports and exports. He started to print so much money to pay for all these new welfare programs to give housing for free, food for free, healthcare, education, absolutely everything. And he bankrupted our nation, led to hyperinflation and submerged 95% of the country into poverty, except those who are very well connected with the regime. And 6 million of us out of 30 million have fled the country in, in a matter of about seven years. So it's been a total disaster. And, and the reason why I left, the reason why millions of others have left. So that is what socialism is, right? Total government control over the economy. And, and that's what we cannot allow. And there's people who, who unfortunately want to do that here. It's not about raising a little tax by 1% or, or you know, uh, reducing or increasing this little welfare program. It's about, uh, you know, radical change that would bankrupt America. And we cannot allow that to happen. What is it about socialism that it goes so hand in hand with a dictatorship? And it's not that capitalism can't be abused. We know it can be or a parliamentary system can't be abused. But when you look at the 20th and 21st centuries, 
like like you just said with Venezuela, that's one generation. You know, 1998, you're talking 25 years. That's a startling change in a country. What is it about socialism that it just goes so hand in hand with tyranny like a Maduro, like a Hugo Chavez, like we've seen in other parts of the world? Well, that, you know, they get elected democratically at first. And, and as soon as things go south economically and, and socially, uh, and the people want to take them out of office, they guarantee their power in office. Because what, what does socialism allow to do, right? It gives total control to the government, which is a lot of corruption opportunities, right? When the government took over businesses, who started to manage state enterprises? Their friend, the general, at this division of the military, or their, their cousin, and, and, you know, and that's how it works, and then they, they pocket the money. Um, and, and that creates a very, group, a very powerful group of special interests with, whose interest is to remain in power to keep profiting from the population. Um, and that's what socialism is about. And that's why we can't take them out because they started rigging the elections after they got into power. And, and that's why the, the last free election with a socialist is the first election. Um, and, and we cannot allow that to happen in America. Uh, because if, if socialism ever comes to America, it will come democratically, right? It's not going to happen like Cuba. It's not going to happen like the Soviet Union, like North Korea, where there's this military guy who takes over after a war or a revolution. Uh, that's not going to happen here. If it happens, it's, it's going to happen like in Venezuela. Venezuela was a middle-income country. Venezuela ha had re natural resources. Venezuela was free and prosperous and, you know, not perfect, with unsafety too, with the corruption, with poverty, just like any other country. But it was a country where people didn't starve to death or millions left their homes. Now that's what Venezuela is. Put your economic hat on for just a second. Talking to Daniel DiMartino uh, today on Herd Tell. Um, what you're really describing is we've heard it a lot in the American parlance of too big to fail. What happens is when the government controls everything, the government is what's too big to fail. And that's where all that corruption comes on. As an economist, though, talk about what that does. You've already talked about the brain drain. You know, six million people have left Venezuela. That's a massive brain drain because those are the people that have the means to leave. Economically, that kind of a brain drain, when the uh, innovation of a country is stifled, when the government is controlling everything and it's too big to fail and there's that much corruption, just on an economic level, everything else starts to break down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the best example is that my family used to make three to five thousand dollars a month in the early two thousands, uh, when Chavez started uh, his government, and by twenty sixteen we were making a hundred dollars a month. Um, so, so that's the decline, and that was the decline of the economy too. Today, the Venezuelan economy is ninety percent smaller than it was seven years ago. Ninety percent. That's what happened to all the Venezuelan population. What kind of, uh, while we're still on Venezuela, before we get to the distant project, Daniel DiMartino joining us, what is there to be done? Because it sure seems like with these dictators, it's almost like you're just waiting for them to die and hope the next guy ain't as bad. Is there anything that can actually be done to Venezuela now? Because it seems like Mandura is pretty entrenched. There was some glimmer of hope a couple of years ago. That seems to have faded. Are they just stuck with this? Is there any hope at all? Well, I think that... If you ask me to predict something, what I would predict is that he's going to stay in power for a very, very long time. Now, if you want to ask me if that has to be the fate, the future, it doesn't have to be. But it will require external intervention. It's not going to happen from within Venezuela. I'm just going to tell you that. And if people are just going to wait for it to happen, then they're going to wait for the rest of their lives. Um, and for the lives of their children, their grandchildren, just like with Cuba. Um, 
and and it's because the the, the incentive structure is is just very powerful, right? The population doesn't have guns. Anyone who could overthrow the regime is already a member of the regime. And they're not going to want Venezuela to become a democracy because they know that if Venezuela becomes a democracy, even if we were to guarantee them protection and, and even if we would go through with the protection and forgive all their crimes, which is not going to happen because the population is going to seek vengeance later. Um, but even if that happened, why would these people do that when they can stay in power and keep profiting? And keep making millions and millions of dollars. So that's that's why I don't think anything's going to happen. Um, but but if it did, it would have to be from from outside the country. All right, Daniel DiMartino, join us. Okay, we always want to have a broad perspective on our program. It's something our audience works really hard on. Give me that perspective. You come to this country. You come from Venezuela. You come to America. What did you expect? And what did you actually find that maybe surprised you a little bit? Just Put people in your mindset as you first came to America to study how different it was and what really struck you about it when you got here. Well, look, the, the biggest difference that is very quickly noticed is uh, security and safety. Uh, Venezuela is and was a very dangerous country. Uh, it, you know, Caracas has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Kidnapping is very common. Robbery is the order of the day. Um, and, and so being able to walk in the street by myself um, in Indianapolis, where I lived, was a very big change in my quality of life for the better. Um, you know, I, I didn't have normal teenage years, right? I couldn't go to parties at any time. You know, we started hosting parties in the day, staying at friends' homes um, be, because things were very different. Um, so that, that was a big change. You know, the weather was a big change, uh, you know, seeing snow and all that. You're not saying Indianapolis is a little different weather-wise than South America. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, I did my first annual in the snow. It wasn't the first time I saw snow. I saw snow in some mountains in Venezuela when I was a baby. But certainly the first time I remember. Um, and and it, was very, it was very cool. I enjoyed it very much. But I also saw, uh, you know, a lot of things that I didn't see in Venezuela. Uh, some of them were that the population in Venezuela by that time had already become very anti-regime, very anti-socialist, very much that they wanted more economic freedom. And here I saw the opposite. I saw a lot of young people who wanted the government to, to control everything, who didn't know anything about what was going on in the rest of the world, like Venezuela and other places, which I did because, you know, I lived in Venezuela and because I, I had an interest in politics because I, I, I was living in a political experiment. Um, but then I, I, you know, culture is different. Um, I really enjoyed being in America. It's a totally different experience in Venezuela. There was a lot of, um, because of the whole security situation, you couldn't even tell your friends what your parents did for a living because you were afraid that some kidnapper would end up knowing. Um, so, so you just felt more at ease in the United States. Um, I, I love it, Andrew. I, you know, this is a very special country. The people are very special. I think that people exaggerate uh, our political differences very much, and they do it because they don't know what real political differences are, which is what happened in Venezuela, in countries where there has even been genocide, where people killed each other for politics. That, that's not, I don't think that's going to happen here, and I hope it doesn't get that bad. Um, yeah. yeah. Talk about real quick, too, um, culturally, when you come over here, we talk about it in the abstract that, you know, America is a big, pluralistic, inclusive society. It's very, very diverse. 
we say that as a buzzword, but I always, when I talk to people who come here from a foreign country, I remember my German exchange buddies, when they came over here, they were just like, wow, there's so many different people here. Talk about the difference in that, especially, you know, you grew up middle of the country. You're now, you know, kind of around DC more. You've been around the country doing media stuff. Now, the culture of America, that diversity, that plurality, talk about how unique that really is when you come here from another country. Well, look, I never felt discriminated in Venezuela, which I know many, sorry, in, in the United States, I never felt discriminated in this country. Because and while I saw some Venezuelan friends who immigrated to other parts of Latin America, and they faced like explicit discrimination in the street from other people. And based on their accent, which was the only thing that made people know whether you were Venezuelan, because um, there's no single Venezuelan look um, or ethnicity. So, so that, that was very shocking to, to see that happening there, not, not in the United States, right? Which has a different language, which is not as culturally close to Venezuela as the rest of Latin America. And so I, I thought that in the United States, I didn't have any of those problems. Um, you know, I had friends from everywhere, from Indi you know, Indian people, uh, you know, uh, regular American natives from Indiana, uh, from different religions, Jews, Christians, uh, you know, atheists, and and that 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 was very cool. You know, I was able to learn from from very many different people. Um, I, I will say though that the the whole um, racial situation in this country and um, controversies, you know, strife or or however you want to call it, it's something that was new to me because it's not something that that I experienced in Venezuela. Um, you know, seeing sometimes people in the college cafeteria sit down only with like other black people or with other white people. That was very strange um, because that was not what happened in, in Caracas, at least. Um, you know, people didn't really care at all. And it was not even part of the conversation, uh, ethnicity, uh, which here it is. And I think that that's the only negative thing that I, that I thought culturally America had, like we really need to get over the whole uh, ethnicity of, of, popula of the population issue. Yeah, Daniel DiMartino. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, he's got a great new thing with Young Voices, the Dissident Project. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about how we're going to talk about socialism going forward. Great guest. Thrilled to have him. Daniel DiMartino joining us on Hertel. Right back with him right after the break. Welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing with our friend Daniel Martino. He is with Young Voices. He has a great thing. Let's just get into it because I'm so excited about it called the Dissident Project. Now, we know what dissident is. Let's do nomenclature again so we don't lose folks. That's a nice big fat word. Dissident. Uh, people are going to start thinking Red Dawn and Wolverines and such. That's not what we're talking about here. Dissident Project, my friend. What do you got in mind with it and what are you going to do with it? Yeah, the Dissident Project is uh, this uh, venture of young voices that I had the idea of. And uh, we got together a group of eight people, including myself, from socialist countries in America, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, and Hong Kong, which was recently taken over by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and we're going to travel to high schools all over the United States to tell our stories and connect it to what's happening here in America and why people need to choose freedom and not be government to solve their problems. Uh, taking us a lesson what happened in our, in our countries of origin. 
Why is that important? Because recently Florida passed a law that requires uh, public high schools to teach about communism, totalitarian systems, and uh, even more recently, it requires 45 minutes of instruction, including first-hand experience from people who live in those places to the students once a year. That means that there are over 2,000 high schools in the state of Florida who will need to, to teach about this, and what a better resource than the Eastern Project to bring speakers to our school, which we have, thanks to a group of donors to Young Voices, uh, we're gonna travel there uh, for free. You know, they're, they're gonna organize the trips and we're volunteering uh, our time to, to, to serve the schools and to talk to the students, which is something that I've loved doing already and I've done before, but now we're gonna do with more people. Now, how are we going to tailor something like this? Because I imagine, let's take Florida, for example. If you're in the Miami area, obviously huge Cuban expat population, very vocal, very politically active down there. Uh, that would be preaching to the choir to those folks because they know it, they've lived it, they believe it strongly. I su- I would submit you'd probably deal with that one a little differently than let's talk Indianapolis again. If you go back to Indiana where people, it's more of an abject thing, you're probably going to address them differently. How do you tailor that to different audiences? Because again, big plural, diverse uh, nation, people have different experiences with government. Small town's going to have a different experience with government than a big city is. Isn't this something that you're going to be able to tailor a little bit differently wherever you take it between the eight of you? Of course. And and we're going to tailor it and especially has to be tailored towards a high school student audience, right? Which is not the same as an adult audience. So notice that it's much more difficult to to gain their attention from. But it's also an audience that is much more open to learning, right? Because they don't have as many preconceived political beliefs. They, They haven't made up their mind about most issues. And unlike going to colleges or or adult events, which are a self-selected audience of people who already agrees with the speaker, usually, in high schools, the teachers send the students regardless of their political beliefs. So we actually have an impact on persuasion and, and on telling people who don't know and maybe are not that interested in the issue and catch their attention and tell them some things. So how we start always is with our story of whoever the speaker is. Uh, of a roster of the dissident project. And from the story, they tell, you know, they connected to, to what happens in America. They warn people about the, the politicians, the, the, the people here who actually support socialist regimes and who, who actually support socialist policies for this country, such that people are not deceived of what that means, right? The, the, the people who are who claim to be socialists here and say that they just want free healthcare, that's not really what they want. They don't really want what the Nordic countries have. They they actually they want actual Venezuelan, Cuban, you know, Chinese socialist policies. And, and that's what we need to warn students about from people who actually lived it and can tell you what were the consequences in our daily lives. Like I didn't have electricity many days per week and water sometimes for several weeks straight after the government took over water and made it free because there was no money to maintain the equipment. And then when the, the things that they did have money for, which is the money they printed, created inflation, which reduced my purchasing power, which we're already seeing in the United States now. They gave so many checks for free to people and now we have nearly 9% inflation. So these things happen. Now it's happening at a much smaller scale here, but if have no doubt, if they were to continue giving checks to people, we would easily have 20, 30% inflation. Yeah. Talking to Daniel DiMartino. Okay. 
when you're talking high school students, though, you're talking about kids that are getting ready to start being voters when they turn 18. We know 18 to 25, that is the lowest participation demographic voting wise. What do you think you can do to kind of get them? Now, that's a growing trend. They're, they're starting to vote more and more. What is it you're going to be telling them that like, hey, you're the politically active. You actually have to put your feet to this. You actually have to go and vote. How do you pitch that part to them? Because it's one thing for them to know this is book learning. It's another for them to be politically active and at least be, if nothing else, at least voters. How do you pitch that to them? Because that's something also in America, you know, that 18 to 25 year old demographic, they just don't vote that much. Everybody wants them to. We always think they're going to. They don't. How do you pitch that to them? Because that's a big part of what you're talking about, too, is if you're going to teach that generation that if they don't go vote, it doesn't really matter, does it? For sure. Well, I think that there's many ways to affect society that are not through the vote. Uh, I think a lot of it is about culture and uh, you know, avoiding them from voting for bad people. But really, look, we're a nonpartisan organization. We're not saying that they should go vote for someone or, or against someone specifically. But what we're giving them is guidelines for, you know, who, who should they be afraid of, really. And, and that includes people who, who support a set of policies. And, and, and government institution and, and destruction of our government institutions and democracy constitution, um, people who support the regimes that we fled from, and certainly encouraging them to, to vote. Because look, for example, the story I give, Venezuelans elected Chavez with about a 50% participation rate in that first election, which means that Chavez won with less than 25% of voters. Less than 25% of Venezuelan voters in 1998, who are like a almost negligible share of the current adult Venezuelan population, have determined our future for the rest of our lives. I wasn't even born when Chavez was elected. And that determined my whole future. And it's going it's determining the future of the kids born today. So that's why we tell people that it's very important to, to participate um, and avoid. The disaster. It's not even about electing someone that is great. It's about avoiding America from going down, right? And preserving at least what we have today. Daniel DiMartino. All right, let's talk about that guardrail to keep America from going down that bad path. When you're talking to the students, how do you explain it? What do you think one of the two, one or two things that we should be doing is, is it accountability in government? Is it strong journalism? Is it strong freedom of speech protections? Is it strong institutions? What's a couple of the things you're telling them that we need to safeguard? Because we understand we have to have some government. We're not saying we should not have any government. What's the guardrails to have good, accountable government and then not turn into something where somebody like a strong man could take over or socialism becomes a thing where it becomes an an untenable monster that we can't control anymore? Yeah. Well, I think the biggest one is uh, protection of private property, uh, not being able, the government not being able to uh, use private property for arbitrary means. And I don't think we actually have enough guardrails for private property in the United States. Even the Supreme Court has allowed, uh, you know, expropriation for the government to give up the private property of someone to someone else, uh, not even for public use, but for other private use, which I think is totally outrageous that we allow that to happen in America and can be very abused if we get someone who, who is willing to abuse that power. And we, we, we need especially, this is not as much of a constitutional or legal guardrail, we need an educated populace. And, and we need an educated populace regarding um, 
authoritarianism and, and the signs of who's an authoritarian leader. Um, and I think that we don't have that when you see people voting for Bernie Sanders and for many other politicians who we know have praised dictators who want to emulate those systems, who, who propose things and, and, you know, just want to give a bunch of things for free without saying how they're going to pay for these things. We need, some, we need a populace educated in basic economics and, and understand that inflation, for example, inflation is something that we already saw decades ago. We know how to keep inflation low and it's a not, it's not a partisan issue. It's, it's an issue of a, monitor, of a responsible monetary policy and, and not crazy budget deficit. And unfortunately, we are losing that grip on reality. Um, and it's not entirely the fault of the people, right? There are, uh, you know, economists and um, uh, very highly educated and, and important people who are pushing these things too. But we have to be smart and kids have to understand that, you know, if you're going to spend something, it's going to come from somewhere. And, you know, incentives matter. If you pay somebody not to work, are they going to be more or less likely not to work? If you know, they guarantee everything for free, why would people work at all? The, it, it's, it, most things are about incentives. This is, I understand that that can be difficult, especially with younger people to understand. But I think it's very well possible. You know, when I was a kid, I started reading Milton Friedman. Um, I was 12 years old, okay? I was a, a crazy kid. Um, and I read Free to Choose, and that really helped me and opened my mind to, to, to think about freedom. And I think that if we did that more, and that's why I'm really happy that Florida passed this law against communism. If I keep things cease and, and hear someone who came from a socialist country, from North Korea, from Venezuela, from Cuba, they'll remember that. And they'll, rem and they'll remember if someone ever praises those regimes or if someone ever proposes something the same, hey, that person who lived in that country says that's, that's not okay. And they won't believe the lies of, of these online forums that try to tell them that, oh no, it's all US imperialism that caused this issue. Don't listen to, to the survivors because they will have already listened to us. Daniel DiMartino, I, I think the personal narrative is the way to go about this because the terminology starts, you know, people's eyes start rolling back in their head and you start talking economics. Personal stories always great, grab people. And I think y'all getting folks, and I, I know the roster, I'll let you tell, tell them here and pitch it, but the people you have telling the personal stories of like, look, this isn't in a book, this wrecked my family, this ruined my country. I think that's the way to approach this stuff. Uh, Daniel DiMartino, tell folks where they can find the Dissident Project. Uh, list a couple of the people that's involved because these are some really, really sharp people that are very impressive and where they can follow you and your social media and what's going on in the future, where they can start watching for y'all as you start to uh, meticulate out into the classrooms of America. Yeah. Well, uh, you can find us in dissidentproject.org. Dissident is with double S. And uh, there we have, we have eight speakers so far, including myself. I have others from Venezuela. We have my friend Franklin Camargo, who was expelled from his university in Venezuela for being against uh, communism and death threats even. Uh, who, he was just studying to be a physician. And he now is in Miami. And we have my friend Felix Yarena, who came from Cuba by himself after being involved in the U.S. Religious Freedom Initiative. Uh, my friend Grace Joe, who came from North Korea and escaped with her mom, um, almost the rest of her family was killed, um, starved to death. It's, it's a harrowing story and, and a very important 
one. And we have also several, two, two people from Hong Kong, uh, including Francis Hui, who, uh, you know, was the first asylum seeker from Hong Kong after the 2019 pro pro protests to get approved and has lived in the United States for the last three years only. Um, so these are very sharp people. These are people that you really want to meet and that I think your students would benefit from meeting. And if you are a teacher at a high school is listening to us, watching us, uh, you can contact us at dissidentproject.org and you won't have to pay anything to bring us to your high school. Uh, we just want to get the word out. Just You just have to make sure that the students go. We'll bring the speakers. We'll do everything else. Yeah, it's great to know. Like I have, I actually have family that married into my family from Hong Kong. So that's something that always hits me. People talk about that. Like, look, I grew up in a house that the house I grew up in is there because of eminent domain. They had to move because, you know, they built the lake and they had to move up on the hill. Um, wow. So the, these these issues are universal issues. It's a matter of whether you keep your government accountable and how they handle these issues, because um, th this is stuff that affects everybody. And we use the socialism term. Uh, probably too broadly, but I appreciate you bringing it into focus. And I'm really excited to see what you do with this. All right. One last quick question in a few minutes we got left though. How's your gains coming? Because you're a gym rat, my friend, you are just <laughs> killing it. You're, um, you're almost twice the man as when I first started following you. Cause you've gotten so big now, but, uh, just real quick. I just hit a new record in my bench press. Even see, though, I knew all I had to do is light the candle. Though, go. There you even go. though I had done triceps before and, and, you know, I had done incline after the, before flat bench. So I'm sure that I'm going to do even better. Uh, I'm trying, I, you know, I don't live that much, you know, I'm not that tall. I'm like five, 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 six. And, uh, you know, I weigh one, how, how much? 150, 148. And, you know, I just look bigger, I think, because of the, <laughs> you know, optics. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to lift more. Um, I think that my PR now for flat bench is uh, 225, which is not that much. It's just two, 245 plays each side. But I that's, think that that's 65% your body weight. That's pretty good, man. 225, it's much more than, my, than yeah. my body weight, right? My body yeah. weight is 150. Yeah, you're so, doing all right. So I'm going to try to to hit 250 um, soon. So that's the goal. Well, uh, we got to get you on the Twitter Supper Club hashtag with all your healthy eating because uh, we, we tend to have a little luscious food on there. You might have to give us some some good protein stuff. Daniel DiMartino, we will definitely have you back again, my friend. Uh, let people know where your Twitter is so they can follow you personally before we let you go. Thank you, Andrew. You all can follow me on at Daniel DiMartino. That is just Daniel, the regular name, and then DiMartino is D-I-M-A-R-T-I-N-O. And uh, yeah, follow me. I, I respond if you want to message me and otherwise visit on project.org. Yep. And he's one of those great young voices contributor. My friend, we will talk again soon, especially as this rolls out so we can get some updates on what's going on out in those classrooms. Great job today. We'll see you soon, my friend. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel. Let's talk a little economics for a second. And this is CNBC has some data here. As we talked about underlying effects in the economy that doesn't show up, one of them was the service workers. When schools are closed, they don't have child care. So people that pick up shifts and things like that, they don't have the ability to work. That messes with the data. It messes with the economy. Here's another stat that's showing up now that we're post-COVID, but still happening. 42%, this is according to CNBC, we'll link to it in the show notes of service workers have no input into their schedules. You think, well, nobody has an input in their schedules. 
we're not talking about whether they work or not. We're talking about when they work. Listen to these statistics. There were more than 50 million people working in retail services in May, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. When it comes to precarious schedules, though, workers in these fields experienced an array of offenses. In the fall of 2021, for example, workers reported the following. This is a survey. 64% of workers received less than two weeks notice of their forthcoming work schedule. 57% experienced shift time changes, including having one day or less notice of these changes. 36% were scheduled a closing shift with an opening shift the following day. And 42% of workers had no input at all into the timing of their work schedules. Now, you might be rolling your eyes a little bit and going, well, what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot when you're talking about 15 million people who can't schedule more than a day or two ahead of time. And you start thinking about things like child care. You start thinking about things like school. You start thinking about their own contributions to the economy when they might do their own shopping or their own travel or their own whatever else. These are economic factors that we don't think of because they're more on the cultural side of like, oh, well, I don't know how often I'm working. But when you start looking at the labor shortage issues, the fact that the labor market is booming, but there's not enough workers, this is one of those non-specific factors that is worth talking about. People get tired of getting jerked around. And when they have an option to go to a different job, it's stuff like this on top of pay, on top of benefits that really affect whether or not they stay in a job. So the high stress, high mobility jobs where the schedules are bad, and especially with non-grade employers who are addicted to last-minute scheduling, this kind of stuff is why you're having trouble hiring people. It's one of those stats that doesn't show up, but it's starting to make a difference and something worth considering. More Hertel after this. go to las vegas uh the las vegas golden knights that's the nhl team out there uh did a nice little charity campaign want to talk about it as our feel good end of the program segment we always try to do uh news3lv.com has this the golden knights foundation donated more than twenty one thousand dollars from its saves for charity campaign to support home housing resources organizations, real estate platform Homey sponsored Sage for Charity, pledging $5 for every seven made by the team during a Vegas Golden Knights game. That pushed the total to $11,070, and the Vegas Golden Knights Foundation matched that with an additional $10,000. The donations will go to the coalition to make homes possible, which aims to close the black home ownership gap in Southern Nevada by providing down payment assistance, financial coaching, credit repair, and other services. We are proud of our partnership with the great people at Homey. Keith Balzer, Vice President Partnership for the Golden Knights, said the Vegas Golden Knights are honored to be part of this Saves for Charity initiative to help local underserved families get on a path to home ownership. We're going to be talking more and more going forward, not just in these charity segments we do, but in general. Uh, housing, homes, very important. It's important not only economically, but culturally has a lot to do with a lot of things. We're going to be talking to some of our economist friends and others about it, but it's good to highlight a couple times the last few programs, anybody that's doing charity work for people to make sure they are in, can keep, and ultimately hopefully own their own homes. That'll do it for Hertel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been good to get a full week of programs in, even though we had a few bumps in there. Uh, I'm still trying to recover a little bit. So if we miss a show here or there or shows a little late, just bear with us. I apologize. 
doing our best with it. It's just going to kind of be like this for the next eight to 12 weeks or so until we figure out what we're going to do going forward. But we appreciate you being here. You want to reach out to us at Show at gmail.com, show at the Twitter. Of course, my Twitter handle, Four for the Fire. You're always welcome to reach out to us there. Love to hear from you. Might even put it on the program, might read it. You never know. Be nice, keep your bearing. But if you don't listen, we don't have anybody to talk to. This is a partnership, and you give us the most precious thing you have your time. So we'd love to hear from you. So until we talk to you again on the next Herd Tell or on the Good Talk segments, if you're listening to the interviews or on the Twice on Sunday show or however you're watching and or listening to this program, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed and we hope you and yours will join us again next time for more Herd Tell. Take care. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Somos la máquina.